This is Ozarks at Large for Wednesday afternoon, October 27th, 2021. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thanks for being with us today. On our program today, this year's winning pitch at the Northwest Arkansas Technology Summit is an engineering innovation designed to help doctors and young patients. So every time you go in to get a diagnosis for a new infection, it's a coin flip as to whether you're going to get the right one. So what you know we do is basically enable them to see directly what's in the middle ear to make those decisions accurately the first time. Ryan Shelton with Photonicare talks to us about the work he and his colleagues are doing. And just ahead, in about four minutes, a conversation with Fareed Nouri about the work MTB Afghanistan is doing to help evacuate women cyclists out of Afghanistan and possibly to northwest Arkansas. Governor Asa Hutchinson and Arkansas's Secretary of Health, Dr. Jose Romero, are urging Arkansans to get their flu shots. Both received their shots yesterday at the beginning of the weekly press briefing hosted by the governor. Governor Hutchinson says early numbers collected in spring and summer months show more off-season flu cases in Arkansas than usual. And he says that could be a harbinger of a stronger-than-usual flu season. He says the deadliest flu year on record in Arkansas was the 2017-18 flu season, when 228 Arkansans died from influenza. The governor says last year, only 23 fatal cases were recorded in the state. Now, what was different last year uh, is that we had uh, a lot of public health precautions, social distancing, wearing a mask, uh, and everyone was careful. uh, And so that had the beneficial impact in terms of the flu, as well as preventive and reducing uh, COVID cases. Flu shots are available at no cost through the Arkansas Department of Health. The Arkansas Department of Health reports 502 new cases of COVID in the most recent 24-hour cycle of testing and 14 additional deaths. The new case total is about 100 fewer than the new case report a week ago yesterday. Active cases in the state dropped by 86 in the last 24 hours. Since February 1st, nearly 89% of hospitalizations because of the virus in Arkansas have been people not fully immunized and 87% of virus deaths have been people not fully vaccinated. The University of Arkansas School of Art will start the state's first Master of Arts in Arts Education curriculum in the state next fall. The program will be a two-year residency and will target arts educators, teaching artists, and museum educators working in schools, museums, and other community roles. All students accepted into the program will receive funding support through a gift to the school from the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Governor Asa Hutchinson says enrollment in computer science courses in Arkansas schools up by 20 percent compared to last year. More than 12,500 Arkansas students are taking at least one computer science course this year. The governor says the gender gap shrunk by 2 percent over the course of the last year. Dr. Ivy Pfeffer, the deputy commissioner at the Arkansas Department of Education, says there is also an increase this year of students taking multiple computer science courses. We're also seeing the expansion of uh, career pathways with computer science courses, meaning that students can take multiple courses that lead to an industry-recognized certification. Dr. Pfeffer says the increases in computer science courses came at every grade level. The Fort Smith National Historic Site will open the Visitor Center and Museum Monday after months of being closed. The site will open with reduced capacity and operate daily from 9 until 5, except for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day. The park grounds and trails will remain open for 30 minutes before sunrise to 30 minutes after sunset. The visitor center and museum closed in March 2020 at the start of the pandemic and also suffered flooded damage caused by a frozen sprinkler head during the extreme cold temperatures in February. New York Times bestselling author and University of Arkansas 2015 graduate Ayanna Gray is back on campus today and tonight. She'll deliver a talk in Gearhart Hall Auditorium at 5.30 this evening as a guest of the U of A Honors College. The address can also be viewed virtually. Information about that at honorscollege.uark.edu. The Arkansas Razorback volleyball team is back in Barnhill Arena tonight, hosting Missouri at 7, and a poll of SEC women's basketball coaches picks the Arkansas Razorbacks to finish 7th in the league this year. South Carolina projected to win the conference. Arkansas opens the season at home Wednesday, November 10th against Tarleton State. There is an exhibition game against Arkansas Fort Smith scheduled for Friday night, November 5th in Bud Walton Arena.
This is Ozarks at Large. For most of its existence, the nonprofit MTB Afghanistan has promoted cycling and mountain biking in Afghanistan, both for Afghanis, especially women, and for tourists who might be unaware of the cycling opportunities available in the mountains of that country. When the Taliban took control of the country earlier this year, that mission changed. Now, Fareed Nori with MTB Afghanistan is working with local cyclists, foundations, and Canopy NWA to relocate women cyclists from Afghanistan. As of last month, about $145,000 had been raised toward the effort. Last week, we reached Fareed Nori and asked him about MTB Afghanistan. He says the group has existed for about three years. And works in Afghanistan to use the bike as a way to empower young Afghans through riding and competing uh, on mountain bikes, as well as connecting people across cultures for their shared love of cycling. So uh, that's the mission. Uh, What we do is basically uh, grow the sport of cycling at the grassroots level, uh, supporting cyclists, building uh, trail infrastructure, and um, encouraging tourism, uh, supporting cyclists to their uh, competition aspirations, um, as well as, um, you know, locally, um, yeah, just all things great with cycling and also um, bringing Afghanistan's mountains to the world, uh, introducing it through cycling, because um, that fact about Afghanistan, its geography is still unknown. And uh, for obvious reasons, obviously, uh, the media hasn't really focused on that. Uh, So one of our goals is to, um, you know, use media, but also, you know, hopefully, at least before the the country collapsed, uh, was to get people to come to experience those mountains. Uh, Yeah, let's touch on that just a little bit, because, of course, we have Ozark Mountains, which my friends who live in the Rockies say, well, you don't really have mountains. <laughs> Not like that. How, how would you describe the mountains of Afghanistan? Yeah, so the mountains of Afghanistan are an extension of the Himalayas. Uh, they come from the northeast uh, section from um, Chitral, which is um, where K2 is. Um, I, I think from the peaks in Afghanistan, you can see K2. And then they kind of fizzle out as you go through southern Afghanistan. We still have a lot of high peaks. Our tallest peak is 24,580 feet. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, they're very rocky. Um, northeastern Afghanistan has more uh, coniferous forests. Uh, the rest of them are more rocky and barren, uh, similar to, you know, Arizona or Salt Lake City. Um, yeah, there's a huge variety of mountain landscape, but pretty much 80% of the country is mountainous. People live uh, at altitudes above uh, 6,000, I believe 80% of the population. And um, so high plains surrounded by mountains, uh, very rural. Uh, you know, when people think about Afghanistan, they immediately think of Kabul because that's where most of the uh, political, economic, uh, social action have been happening, but uh, most of Afghans still in rural areas uh, in these mountains that I was just describing. As you alluded to, of course, Afghanistan has been in the news for other reasons than mountain biking over the last uh, several months or so. What has the, the, the Taliban takeover, what has that meant for MTB Afghanistan? Yeah, well, first of all, um, every year we organize the Hindukush Mountain Bike Challenge, which we started three years ago as Afghanistan's first ever cross-country mountain bike race in an effort to introduce the sport, to bring community together. And every year it had been growing. And obviously we had the plans to organize that for a fourth year uh, this year. We're obviously not doing that. Um, All our programs that we wanted to continue uh, is on hold right now, mainly because the people that uh, was a part of our program are leaving the country and we're helping them evacuate. So we don't have any programs uh, in the near future. Uh, we It's a very uncertain environment. Um, the people that we helped feel threatened. So we are basically there's no room for us to work in Afghanistan anymore. Um, I'm 
hoping that that will change going forward. You mentioned evacuations helping with that. How how is that working, and and what does that mean on your end? Yeah, we are helping evacuate around forty five cyclists uh, and their families. Uh, one group is mostly female, with whom we wanted to partner. Uh, it was going to be Afghanistan's first uh, female-owned cycling club. Uh, some members were a member of the Afghan national women's team, and uh, they needed equipment. And our organization was partnering with them to send equipment from the United States, mainly bikes, which were really scarce in Afghanistan. There's no distribu- distributors. Um, and people find really uh, poor equipment through uh, you know, imported secondhand bikes uh, that are not fit for uh, the level of riding that they wanted to do. So we wanted to help them from here. And, um, you know, it was an active project. We were sourcing the bikes, uh, planning to send them. And then things obviously fell apart in Afghanistan and the mission changed into evacuation. So originally we were helping with that group and now we're also trying to evacuate about 17 people who have been beneficiaries of our own program. Uh, Some of the individuals have been able to come to the U.S. um, on the evacuation flights and uh, they're in camps and we're in contact with them to help them resettle in the United States. We're moving the rest of the group to a third country before their U.S. visa could be processed. Do you hope that some of these cyclists can relocate to Northwest Arkansas? Absolutely. I, uh, it's, it's the best place to be. Um, there's obviously the cycling is incredible. And then um, there's a lot of economic activity. I think that they would have a much easier time getting started in the U.S. They're all of them are young people and they're very hardworking. And I think that they uh, could benefit from uh, resettling here, but also uh, benefit the, the region as well. Farid, I apologize. I don't know much about your history, your career. You're the founder of this cycling organization. Are you learning things about diplomacy or travel or things like that as this evacuation process goes? Yes, absolutely. Uh, This is not why we started Mountain Bike Afghanistan, obviously. Um, And it wouldn't, it will not be what we will continue to do. I hope not. Um, Mountain Bike Afghanistan was started to promote play in Afghanistan. It's been a very difficult place to grow up as a young Afghan, uh, myself included, because, uh, you know, there's been a conflict for almost half a century. And um, in that conflict, there's not been a lot of opportunities. And I think that there's also a lot of trauma in war. And we wanted to just bring more joy and play. Uh, We have a beautiful country and we wanted to get people out to explore it, to have fun in it, to have a sense of normalcy. That's what Mountain Bike Afghanistan wants to do. Right now, we're focused on exactly what you're saying, diplomacy, trying to get these people to uh, the cyclists to safety, uh, working with, uh, you know, resettling organizations, politicians, visa applications, lawyers. Um, I'm hoping uh, it is it is important work. Uh, but, uh, you know, once we're um, successful with that, um, I, I'm excited about jumping back to what we set out to do. And it's going to be really difficult to do exactly that under the Taliban regime. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a long-term goal and we're, we're excited to pursue it despite the challenges. Is there anything a listener who's hearing our conversation can do to help? Yeah, they can uh, support our evacuation effort. Uh, we're fundraising for the evacuation, uh, ongoing evacuation of the cyclists that I mentioned. They can go on MDB Afghanistan to help us meet our goal, which will be uh, all the funds will go to the Human Rights Foundation, who we have partnered with to evacuate the cyclists. Um, and 100% of the funds go for the evacuation. We're all volunteers. Uh, so that would be the first immediate help that we need. And um, apart from that, I think that uh, 
in general, just, I, th I think that the most impact would be locally, um, there's going to be more Afghan refugees resettling in Northwest Arkansas as part of the Afghan refugee wave that's coming to the U.S. And uh, yeah, just giving them a warm welcome. And I know that they're wonderful people already uh, who are really active in that area and um, just making them feel at home and getting involved with organizations like Canopy Northwest Arkansas um, would be tremendous. Finally, for many people, a, a bicycle can be something they receive for a birthday or Christmas when they're 10, or it can be transportation, or it can be a, a vehicle to catch air on a, on a trail. I'm wondering for you, what does a cycle represent? What can it represent? Yeah, I think the first one is uh, pure joy. Uh, I think everyone will, this will resonate with everyone who's, who rides a bike, who remembers learning the first time how to pedal balancing. It's just pure joy. Uh, and I, that, that's what it brings in my life. And uh, there's been, you know, I've been in the U.S. by myself, away from family as a student uh, in the past 10 years. And there's been a lot of difficult times, uh, not just this past August uh, when the country fell to the Taliban, but even before that, um, you'd wake up a day and there's really terrible news from uh, an attack, uh, you know, either in my neighborhood or throughout the country. Um, dealing with uh, the emotional impact of that can be really difficult. And in, in those times specifically, the bike has meant so much to me. I I literally ride it intentionally in those moments. And it's just instant moment of gratification, finding solace and, and, and peace. Um, that's what it has done to me. And I think that that is deeply tied with the joy that it brings. Uh, the other meaning that bike has and can have a huge impact uh, in a place like Afghanistan is that it's an expression for freedom. You ride your bike, uh, you're in total control. You can go wherever you want. And uh, in Afghanistan, people in general cannot go wherever they want uh, because of the conflicts in the past. Um, as in general, uh, Afghans have been living in excluded pockets for safety. Yet we have this incredible country that we're almost as strangers and we haven't had a chance to see and the bike can be the tool for that. Um, and then there's, uh, most importantly for women, um, the fact that it can be a vehicle for expressing freedom is so impactful in breaking gender stereotypes and, uh, you know, achieving gender equality in the society. Um, so from those angles, the bike is, it's just a wonderful tool. Um, but ultimately, for anyone who rides a bike, it's just pure joy. Fareed Nori is with MTB Afghanistan. He spoke with us last week by Zoom. More can be found at mtbafghanistan.org. Support for KUAF comes from the Northwest Arkansas Business Journal, now featuring professional development with information on colleges and public and private schools, plus local business news from Northwest Arkansas. Subscriptions and information available at nwabusinessjournal.com. Due to multiple COVID outbreaks within the group, the Marshall Tucker Band with opening act The Outlaws Concert, scheduled for this Friday, October 29th, has been rescheduled to Friday, March 25th, 2022. More information is available online at theauditorium.org. One of the longest-serving members of the Arkansas House of Representatives, Carolyn Pollan of Fort Smith, is being remembered as an advocate for children. Pollan served as a Republican in the Arkansas House for nearly a quarter of a century. She died this weekend. During her tenure, she created the Children and Youth Committee, which has evolved into the current House Committee on Aging, Children and Youth, Legislative and Military Affairs. She was 84. The American Red Cross of Missouri and Arkansas continues to appeal for donors to help make up blood supply deficits. John Brimley, the regional communications manager for the agency, says it's not unusual for supplies to dip a bit after the summer months. But what we're seeing right now is the inventory nationally for Red Cross is just uh, so low across the board. Uh, we're seeing 
Uh, it had the lowest that has been in about six years uh, with less than a day supply of certain blood types uh, in recent weeks. He says when the Delta variant spiked in the Ozarks in the summer, there was a further 10 percent drop in donor turnout. Right now, we need to collect approximately 10,000 additional blood products each week over the next month or so to kind of mitigate this shortage. The American Red Cross of Missouri and Arkansas is offering different incentives, including free sandwiches and Amazon gift cards, to further entice would-be donors of all blood types. If you can, if you have the opportunity, um, just please visit redcross.org um, and schedule your appointment or um, call us at 1-800-RED-CROSS and you know, figure out where the, the closest donor center or closest blood drive is happening in your area. John Brimley is the regional communications manager for the American Red Cross of Missouri and Arkansas. He spoke with us yesterday. Drug overdose deaths are skyrocketing, and the Biden administration is now unveiling a new plan designed to keep people with addiction alive. We are literally trying to give users a lifeline. We're willing to go to places where our opinion and our tendencies have not allowed us to go. That story this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered this afternoon from 3 to 6 on KUAF and also available through the free KUAF app. This is Ozarks at Large. This month's Northwest Arkansas Technology Summit in Bentonville included a pitch contest for innovators working on tech solutions to make healthcare affordable, convenient, and accessible. The 2021 winner, Ryan Shelton, founder and CEO of Photoni Care. Last week, we called him to ask about his company and about the pitch contest itself. It was a great experience. They did a really nice uh, job with kind of organizing it. And uh, they had a really impressive panel of judges that had, you know, some people that I had known from the industry um, in, in one way or another, kind of everybody you know, top of their field. So it was uh, it was really nicely done, and uh, it was a pleasure to participate. I'm just curious, was it in person? You're in front of the panel? Is it like some of those shows we see on primetime television? Right, yeah. So it's it's been interesting over the past, you know, 18 months the, how, how some of these types of events have evolved. This one was completely virtual, and it was all pre-recorded as well. And then they, you know, uh, kind of announced the winner through the app for the, uh, the tech summit after they played the recording. And this year's theme, they wanted people to make pitches that would provide tech solutions to making healthcare more affordable, more convenient, and more accessible. And Photonicare fits right in there, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, we'd like to think so. Um, you know, we're we're really trying to help uh, you know improve the care, largely for kids around chronic ear infections. And you know, right now the the tools that they use uh, are fifty percent accurate. So every time you go in to get a diagnosis for a new infection, it's a coin flip as to whether you're going to get the right one. So what you know we do is basically enable them to see directly what's in the middle ear to make those decisions accurately the first time, and that does end up sending. I'm sorry, it does end up uh, saving a lot of money in the healthcare system because we're not having to, you know, spend money on antibiotics and tube surgeries that are unwarranted. How, what what makes it easier to look into the inner ear and and be more sure of the diagnosis? But yeah, it's a good question. So today they use an otoscope, and everybody's seen an otoscope used. It's it's literally used in every office exam, you know, 180 million times each year in the U.S. And it's just a magnifying glass and a pin light. So it's an incredibly archaic technology that basically looks at the surface of the eardrum. The disease is in the middle ear, on the other side of that eardrum. So they don't have any way to actually see the disease directly. They look at the eardrum and use that as a proxy for the middle ear health. Our difference is that we still provide them with that surface image that they're used to, but we also use infrared light to look straight through the eardrum and visualize what's on the other side of it. So it gives them direct access to the disease that they're trying to diagnose, uh, which is really what kind of changes the game for them in terms of uh, accuracy and and uh, and parent satisfaction. Is it, it and is it kind of the same sort of what you know what we think of when they're using that scope 
the conventional one now. Same sort of process. They just kind of rest it on the air and point it in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if there's one thing I've learned in developing technologies for, you know, clinicians in general, but especially ones on the front lines of healthcare, is you try not to change what they're doing as much as possible. So we just, um, you know, we same form factor as a regular otoscope. The workflow is the same. We just overlay this additional information on top of it. So it doesn't take them any longer to do the exam. They do it in the exact same way. We just give them more information to make a better decision. All right. Anyone who's had a child with chronic ear infections or anyone who's had an ear infection themselves understands that you'll want to get rid of them. They're not pleasant. What led you to this uh, avenue? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I'm an engineer by training. I have a PhD in bioengineering from Texas A&M University. I'm a Aggie. And uh, I have three kids too, though. So uh, so I, I came at this as a father. And what happened, I was doing some research um, in, in optics and biomedical imaging at the University of Illinois uh, as a postdoc. And my oldest son, Jack, was going through his first year of life. And he had just a terrible time with chronic ear infections. He had you know, 10 office visits and eight rounds of antibiotics in his first 12 months of life referral for surgery, um, the whole bit. So that allowed me to kind of, from a parent perspective, look at this process. And really, I kind of assessed it and decided it had very little real information that seemed to go into it. Uh, A lot of subjectivity. And uh, so that's really what put me down the path of let's take this technology that we're working on in the lab, which was essentially bringing um, imaging technology from specialty settings and finding ways to uh, leverage it in frontline care. And let's put it towards ear infections. You know, I, I lived this problem. I see this problem. So we went out and did the customer research, everything involved to ensure that it was a problem worth solving. And, uh, and we're kind of off to the races at that point. But that, that personal kind of parent patient experience uh, is what drove me into the field. All right. I don't know if this next question is based completely in ignorance or has some curiosity in it, but when you do customer research on something that will involve looking beyond the eardrum, how do you do that? I There's a lot of really great resources, you know, across the country. And, you know, I'll do a, a quick call out to Sarah Goforth at U of A because she runs, uh, you know, a lot of these types of programs. I've been involved with a couple of them, actually, but that, that really encourage technologists to get out of the building and go talk to customers and really, you know, exercise this, this customer discovery in an attempt to figure out, okay, we know we've built something that we think is cool. Does somebody else think it's cool? And do they think it's cool enough to pay for it in a way that makes a business? And that's really kind of the key to that. So there's some really great programs set up that will help facilitate that. The nice thing about programs is that uh, they, they give you a little accountability. So you really get out there and get your numbers uh, but really, I mean, you don't have to have one. You can, you know, go to your, you know, physician, pediatrician, whoever it is, and just start asking questions. You know, the thing that you got to understand, most people, they want to talk to you. Don't walk into it trying to sell something because you don't have something to sell yet. Walk into it uh, trying to figure out what's their problem because then you know if you have a solution. And, and that's really the way you got to approach it. It's not the first time I've had someone give a shout out to Sarah Goforth for her, her vision or her help. Uh, I'm sure it's not. <laughs> so, so where are you now? What does winning this pitch mean? And, and where do you see the next two or three years? This has been perfect for me. So a little background on me and my family. We actually are recent transplants here. We moved here in, January. And, you know, part of my goal over the last several months has really been meet as many people in Northwest Arkansas as possible and try to understand, you know, what are the resources here? Who are the players? Um, You know, how can I help uh, build this ecosystem? So, you know, exposure like this is very helpful in that sense because it just, um, it helps, you know, build that ecosystem, get, get me plugged in. It helps me figure out where can I help and add value and add to this ecosystem that we're building here. So that's been, uh, you know, it's really great for that. And of course, you know, recognition from the company perspective is, is great. We're actually in the middle of a, of a financing, you know, raise of money right now. So that, you know, all that exposure is always fantastic. All right. 
I so admire people who see a problem or a challenge and then can work towards solving it. I'm wondering, is that with your PhD in engineering from A&M, is that just something you do all the time? Do you see the garage door not going down all the way and go, I wonder what's going on? And then you try to figure it out. It's a great question. So one thing that I've understood about myself for a while now is that I, I, I often have a, a, a deep seated urge to figure out how something uh, how, how to do something, right? And that that might be something that's highly technical. It might not be. You know, I'm I'm a bit I'm big into mountain biking, and frankly, it's one of the draws you know that I've had to this area. But uh, you know, I I don't ever take my bike in to get maintenance done unless I've done that maintenance on the bike myself, and I understand it. And then I say, okay, well, I've done it once. I don't really care to do it again, so I'm gonna have someone else do it. But I understood it, and I think that has helped me understand things, you know, both from a problem perspective, as well as, as, you know, coming up with solutions by just being super curious and having this deep seated need to understand, uh, you know, what's going on and how things work. All right. Where can lay people find out more about this? Yeah. So we have a website, uh, www.photoni, P-H-O-T-O-N-I.care. Um, and, I mean, hopefully you can find it at your, uh, your, your pediatrician here soon. You know, we're starting to look for partners in the Northwest Arkansas area. So if there's a, you know, if you want to see this in your pediatrician's office, uh, feel free to point them to, you know, my contact information or our website. Uh, anybody else that just finds this interesting, please look me up. I'm always happy to talk uh, over a coffee or a beer. So I'd love to connect. Critical to the success we've had so far is uh, a very excellent team. And I just want to do a quick call out. You know, I founded this company with a MD PhD from university of Illinois and another engineer. Uh, so, you know, thanks to, you know, Ryan Nolan, um, Jeff Hyder, Steve Bopard, a lot of the rest of our team, we're up to about 16 people now. And it's just been truly an honor to build a team around a problem that uh, is something that will be solved and has to be solved. So that's been a blast, and I couldn't have done this without a fantastic team around it. Ryan Shelton is the founder and CEO of PhotoniCare and the winner of this month's Northwest Arkansas Tech Summit Pitch Contest. He spoke with us late last week. This is Ozarks at Large. We continue our trips into the first 150 years of the University of Arkansas with Charlie Allison, the executive editor at University Relations at the U of A. This week, how a structure dedicated to the arts is itself a work of art. In looking through the budget laid out for construction of the University of Arkansas's new Fine Arts Center, there were eight light fixtures that seemed to cost more than your average light fixture. But the architect, Edward Durrell Stone, had previously ordered stylized artwork, ten sculptural masks and two plaques, all designed by the noted sculptor Gwyn Lux. Those were used to adorn the walls of the University Theater. So Arkansas officials apparently took little notice of the odd light fixtures. To be honest, most of the expenses for the building being erected in 1949 and 1950 were significantly below the projects that Ed Stone usually worked on. But Fayetteville was where he first grew up, and the university was where he got his first bit of higher education in the early 1920s. So he had a soft spot for the place. Stone was by 1950 an internationally acclaimed architect. After the U of A, he attended Harvard and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, but he never quite finished a degree anywhere. However, he knew how to draw and design. His first major project was a senior designer for Radio City Music Hall being built in New York City in 1932. He followed that with the Museum of Modern Art, also in New York, in 1937. For the university, his budget wouldn't be as grand. Nevertheless, he created an arts complex that had never been tried before. He designed a center that combined all of the fine arts in an interconnected space. Studio art, music, theater, dance, and architecture. And with the express intention and hope that students of the various disciplines would be inspired by those in the other fine arts. The paintings or sculptures being created by students in art might be influenced by the play they had seen the night before. Or music students might be inspired by the soaring architectural design of a fellow student and then write a composition as lifting and majestic. One national writer described the center as, quote, 
the first glimpse we have had of a revolutionary concept of teaching and presenting the arts in a center of their own. When the complex was finished, the Fine Arts Center included a three-story classroom wing, a fine arts library, a music concert hall, and a theater. They were all connected at the hip by an open art gallery. Outside the gallery were a sculpture garden and a small open amphitheater. The entire structure fit within the modern vernacular and reflected the international style that Stone had pursued during the early part of his career, a functional architecture that threw out most ornament and historical sentiment for the clean, pure lines of structure. A writer for the Architectural Forum wrote, quote, In the eyes of a qualified architectural critic, the art center would stand out not by virtue of the most exciting new forms or as an exposition of architectural creed or style, but as a group unique in its quiet beauty, serenely and fully achieved with occasional brilliant passages. These qualities put it ahead of any recent state university work that has come to light, puts it in a class with MIT and Harvard. One of the collaborating architects on Stone's team was Beverly Lorraine Green, the first African-American woman to become a licensed architect. She worked specifically on the design of the University Theater, the first portion of the complex to be finished. Green and Stone designed the stage to allow its use in either a traditional proscenium style with a full fly and orchestra pit, or as a theater in the round. A carpentry shop on the east side of the theater allowed construction of sets on site. A costume shop and changing rooms on the west side allowed the entire production to feel like a family. The theater opened in November 1950 with a play titled Acres of Sky. It was adapted from a novel of the same name by alumnus Charles Morrow Wilson. The play is an Ozarkian folk story, but told in a modern visual and theatrical style. It required a collaboration between university students, faculty, and New York professionals from Wilson's milieu. Zoe Schiller wrote the lyrics and Arthur Kreutz composed the music. Bonnie Bird, a student of Martha Graham, choreographed the modern dances. Acres of Sky opened in November 1950 to some critical acclaim by the New York City Press and notoriety from having a photographer from Life magazine taking pictures. George Friedley, a dramatic critic for the New York Morning Telegraph, wrote, quote, I don't believe I've ever encountered as much talent in any campus theater in the country as I found in Arkansas. Well, a writer for the student newspaper, the Arkansas Traveler, was less enthusiastic. He warned students that even though the show had music, it didn't have any, quote, tunes to whistle while shaving. <laughs> and the writer also suggested that the play might be more aptly titled Acres and Acres of Sky. I, I, I guess it went on a little too long for the shaving whistler. The concert hall opened in January 1951 with the Walden String Quartet from the University of Illinois, and then an organ concert by Carl Weinrich of Columbia University a week later. The music hall was officially dedicated in May with a performance of The Marriage of Figaro. The university president at the time, Lewis Webster Jones, delighted in taking visitors on tours of the building, and especially the art gallery. They might be the families of prospective students, a business owner considering Fayetteville for a factory, or even just an Arkansas farmer in overalls who had heard about the new building and ambled up the hill from the Ozark Grocers Wholesalers plant on Dixon Street. Everyone marveled at the building, despite its meager budget. Stone had found creative ways to get what he wanted. For instance, he reused cast-off aluminum discs left over from the manufacture of movie reels and turned them into a glittering fishnet tapestry that hid the unfinished ceiling of the concert hall from the audience below. On the other hand, he also specified those eight relatively expensive light fixtures for the building. Well, turned out, those were actually eight kinetic sculptures, mobiles, designed by the internationally known artist Alexander Calder. And Stone had persuaded Calder to create the mobiles at a below-market price. Someone apparently knew the true worth of the sculpture, though, because today there are only seven. Don't ask how, no one knows. It remains an unsolved mystery where the eighth went. Today, the departments of theater and music and the School of Art continue to use the building. In 1978, the George and Boyce Billingsley Music Building was built at the eastern end of the Fine Arts Center and attached to it through elevated walkways which helped alleviate some of the classroom, rehearsal, and studio needs. Although updates and modest expansions have occurred during the last 70 years, a renovation of the entire complex is slated to begin in early 2022. Charlie Allison is the executive editor of University Relations at the University of Arkansas, and this year he's delivering portraits for us of the university's people, events, and places to mark the school's sesquicentennial. More observations of the first 150 years are listed at 150 .uark.edu. Amal is a nine-year-old Syrian girl. She's very curious. She's a bit mischievous. 
who also happens to be an 11-foot-tall puppet. Yeah, she's very, very big. And for months, she's been walking across Europe with an important message. I hope she gives hope to many people. Special delivery. That's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The TED Radio Hour, Sunday afternoon at 1 on KUAF 91.3. You can also listen at KUAF.com. And at KUAF.com, you can find a schedule of all of our weekend programs. Speaking of schedules, yours probably doesn't allow you to always be with us, either at noon or 7, for the broadcast versions of Ozarks at Large. We do have a podcast version available for free through all the major podcast distributors. And we also have a free Ozarks at Large KUAF email newsletter. You sign up for that at KUAF.com once a day, every weekday. You have a list sent to you in your email inbox that tells you what was on the show that day and gives you direct links so you can punch through and listen to the interview story or feature story that you want to. The Ozarks at Large KUAF email newsletter available to you for free. Just go sign up at KUAF.com. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is giving away tickets to the 74th annual Eureka Springs Folk Festival, November 11th through the 14th. Performers include Gangsta Grass and The Creek Rocks, Todd Snyder, Arkansas, Sam Baker, and more. The winner will be announced Friday, November 5th, during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Registration and details available at KUAF.com. Support for KUAF comes from La Jolla Agency, presenting Beatles vs. Stones, a musical showdown, Wednesday, November 10th at the Majestic Fort Smith. Beatles and Rolling Stones National Touring Tribute Bands will perform sets, and the audience will pick their favorite from their performances. Advanced tickets are available at MajesticFortSmith.com. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Pastor Clint Schneckloth, who is lead pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. You always bring books, and you haven't disappointed this time. You got books, including a couple here from Naomi Novik. Yes. Yeah, so Naomi Novik was one of the nominees for this year's uh, Hugo Awards. So um, I've been reading my way through those because I'm actually going to the... um, the big world con in DC in December should, should point out the Hugo awards are for the best in science fiction and, and fantasy. Yeah. And, and then a little bit broader because they also cover now some other media. So they do a nominations for film and short story and video games and that right. kind of thing too. Yeah. Right. So, um, this is in the best, uh, um, novel category and imagine if, uh, Hogwarts was like 500% more deadly than the Harry Potter novels. Like, basically, you can anticipate that if you go to this school, at the end of your schooling, only maybe about a quarter of the students are still alive. Okay. Um, yeah. Gosh, this sounds kind of like, I haven't watched it yet, but kind of like the Squid Game sort of phenomenon. Yeah, there. yeah. And the reason that is, in these novels, is because... Uh, the uh, anyone who goes to school in the Sholomans has um, ability, met like abilities, and that's why they're going to the school. But because they have abilities, that a lot of magic that's been made by previous magicians, if they do it wrong or if they do it for poor reasons, it can live on, and those things are hungry, mm. and what they search out and eat, some of them are people who are magic users. And so what the what the school does is it goes out and finds the kids who have these uh, magical abilities, gets them into the school, and the school is built to keep out all of these creatures right. that could kill you, except it can't keep all of them out. They still find their way in. I think I know why this novel is called Deadly A Deadly Education. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so then the, the what's puzzling, though, is – now think about this. It just makes sense, right? It's kind of like any zombie movie you've seen where your whole the whole goal in a zombie movie is to not have the zombies pay attention to you. So if you're in town and there's a bunch of zombies around, you're trying to sneak <laughs> through the town really quiet, right? Right. Well, if you assemble a whole bunch of kids in one place who are all have magical abilities, then you actually even attract more 
of these hungry things okay. than otherwise. And so the, it's like they're inside this fortress, and the fortress is drawn. It's super cool. One of the coolest things about the book is the map of the school itself. I'm always hooked. If you've got a map on the inside jacket, uh-huh. I'm in. Yeah. And it's a big crank. And so when you start the school, you start at the top, and it rotates, and you go down and down and down until you're in your last year of school, and then there's a final graduation day, and on the final graduation day, a door opens, and you have to run out, and when you run out, you're attacked by all the monsters around you, (laughs) and so... (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased with the University of Arkansas. Thank you very much. Okay, and and so depending on how much you've learned, yeah, really only survive. the highest powered ones survive and get out, and and the rest are all watching this happen, and they're like knowing that, and so they're super. The students are super driven because it's about like literally survival, and they all are protecting each other, and you have to imagine like going to school where you're like trying to study your books. But at the same time, something could come out of the book stacks and try to eat you. <laughs> so, Always. <laughs> so, so this uh, is, uh, is this intended for adults? This or is this a YA adjacent sort of? It's definitely YA. It, it might even be YA, but it's definitely YA adjacent. And um, my son read it and loved it. It was our favorite book of this last year. It went like right to the top. Um, it's because, I mean, it, it is deadly, but it's not, like, awful or gruesome in quite the same way that maybe, like, Squid Games okay. is. Partially because it's a novel and not a, sure. you know, so you're sure. not seeing it. But also because the 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 other great attraction of it is the the characters. This the, the main protagonist is just, she's an absolute, like, bad blank. I don't know if you can say that word. Badass. You can say it, Okay. Okay. Good. Good. (laughs) And she is. And so she has attitude and um, she like, like people like her and are friends with her, but not necessarily because she's super nice because she's focused on, I mean, in a way they all have to be this way, like, because it's like you have to survive. Um, But for some reason that's attract, like you kind of are attracted to the characters, even the, the worst ones. So you've got, that's a deadly education. I take it that's the first one. And then this one, Ooh, the last graduate, <laughs> right. the second in a trilogy. Lesson two of the Sholomans. <laughs> and so, um, the, so I just brought this to show you. I haven't actually uh, um, read it yet, but what I'm ex- I'm super excited to read it because she's going to be rolling out this three-part not, um, trilogy. And in the first one, you only get so far in mm-hmm. the progression of the school. And so now it's like, okay. And you, you, only, you don't really know the outside world yet. Like you finished the first book and you've still just mostly known the school. And that way, again, it's a little bit kind of structured like the Harry Potter novels for those who are familiar with it, where it takes you a few novels to get a wider and wider sure. sense of just the, the muggle world in the Harry Potter world. These books often have, you know, serve as a metaphor for many things. When you were talking about going further and further down and then having to run out after you graduate... That really sounds like a metaphor for either high school or college, right? You're running out into, quote, the real world, and there are going to be monsters, be they mortgage or student debt or whatever. Yes. Or even just like life. Like I had a friend describe for me the other day. They were like, you know, it's kind of weird if you think about it that um, some religious traditions have this standard that um, you're supposed to like have figured it out. Like, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. whatever that is, like salvation mm-hmm. or whatever, when you only have like 80 years <laughs> and you're just right. dumped into it at the beginning with like nothing and no knowledge and right. you know, anything. No roadmap. No roadmap. And you're just supposed to, okay, I guess I go this way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so the theme of the, of the <clears throat> school is in wisdom shelter. So ah, like, like that. they're not just learning because they're curious. They're literally, in this case, learning because that's how you survive. Excellent. A Deadly Education, The Last Graduate, Naomi Novik. Yes. Ooh, I'm very interested in those. And it looks like um, those are thickish books you have in front of me, but they look like they're fast reads. They're totally fast reads because you're totally, it's just, it's breathless. Right. There's never, like, that's the other thing is there's never any downtime because they get done, like, fighting off something that just almost kills them. And then they go to eat lunch, and then their lunch tries to kill them. (laughs) 
<laughs> that too sounds like my high school, but uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> pastor Clint Schneckloth is lead pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville, and he often comes to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio to suggest books of all kinds. This time, he recommends the books A Deadly Education and The Last Graduate by Naomi Novik. I'm Tanya Mosley. With Halloween right around the corner, pumpkins are popping up everywhere. And as Chef Kathy Guns shows us, there's more to them than pumpkin spice. She joins us with pumpkin recipes, both sweet and savory, next time on Here and Now. Here and Now is just ahead on KUAF, beginning at 1. On tomorrow's Ozarks at Large... We'll summarize today's State of the Region meeting hosted by the Northwest Arkansas Council. We'll check in with Timothy Dennis to find out our live music options for a Halloween weekend. And we hear from a member of Come From Away, the first Broadway show back on the Walton Arts Center stage in well over a year. It doesn't necessarily focus on the tragedy of Tuesday, September 11th. It uh, moves forward into the response to tragedy and how this community built lifelong relationships uh, in the days afterwards. Harder Klingman discusses the musical Come From Away and why he gets to travel with his dog Charlie on the national tour. The show is on stage at Walton Arts Center right now and the rest of this week, and our conversation is tomorrow on Ozarks at Large on KUAF at noon and 7 p.m. and by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. KUAF is supported by Penguin Edge Barbecue, open for curbside pickup seven days a week at the Mission and Crossover location in Fayetteville, and open seven days a week with dine-in, patio. Central Arkansas Library System's Six Bridges Book Festival is October 21st through the 31st. This free festival offers virtual presentations from authors Sandra Cisneros, Susie Garcia, Melissa Lozada Oliva, and others. Select sessions are available in Spanish through a grant from the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities, sixbridgesbookfestival.org, for event schedule. It's almost time to end this edition of Ozarks at Large, but before we do, let's highlight something that's happening at the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum tomorrow night that sounds pretty interesting, kicking off the Halloween weekend with a special lecture, Art Case Files of Painters and Grave Robbers. Ram says, at the cusp of Byzantine and Renaissance art, an important shift took place, a shift to realism in the figure from Michelangelo's David to Leonardo's Mona Lisa. The anatomy of some of these subjects look eerily on point to a degree that would surpass the medical journals of the time. Fort Smith Ram will go into the mysteries of how these artists did that. That is tomorrow night at 7. You can watch virtually. It's free, but registration is required. It'll be a Zoom lecture and on Facebook Live. Go to the Fort Smith RAM, that's the Fort Smith Regional Art Museum location on Facebook, to learn more. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Clarksville. You can listen to us anytime, anywhere, by using the updated free KUAF app. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors to our program this Wednesday included... Charlie Allison from the University of Arkansas, and Pastor Clint Schneckloth from Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Fayetteville. Timothy Dennis once again produced today's show. Hey, we're also a podcast you can download or subscribe for free through any major podcast distributor. You can also sign up at KUAF.com. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 p.m. on KUAF 91.3. Thanks so much for being with us, and your continued support and attention means a lot. From the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio at the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. Please take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon.